Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 571. Uh, it's a best of episode with... Uh, Lori Kilmartin. It was recorded in the first two years of the podcast, and it's a really special episode. And uh, if you haven't listened to it, and even if you have listened to it, listen to it again. That's that is a command. I'm not asking. I'm telling. Uh, but it's a great conversation, and uh, she's just such a funny, sweet person. Um, we are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com online therapy. Uh, I am back. In therapy, as I've mentioned before, uh, my uh, original BetterHelp therapist uh, had to leave to take care of her uh, critically ill husband, and so I've been matched with uh, Heidi, who uh, whose area of expertise is helping people get get motivated, and uh, she also does uh, childhood trauma, and I'm sure that'll come up at some point. But um, yeah, she's she's. Uh, having me try out this thing called the the Pomodoro uh, method, which is a way of setting aside time and timing yourself to say, okay, I'm going to work on this task. I'm going to work on this task. And uh, I'll keep you apprised of, uh, of how it's going. But if you're interested in trying BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire, and uh, they'll give you counselors to choose from if they feel that they have counselors that are a good fit for you. And then you can pick one and uh, get rolling within 48 hours. And again, go to betterhelp.com metal, and you can get 10% off your first month of counseling. We will be back in January with new episodes. Uh, so uh, here, again, is the best of with Laurie Kilmartin from, I believe, 2012. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to episode 91 with my guest, Laurie Kilmartin. I am Paul Gilmartin, and this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 
An hour of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions to everyday compulsive negative thinking and any other shit you want to throw in there that fucks us up. The uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that uh, has a nice bowl of fruit. Wow, that's all I got. Whole fucking week to come up with something better than that. And that's all I got. Thank you for your suggestions. People have been sending me suggestions. It's more like a waiting room that dot, 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 dot. Kind of like, uh, I I think two, two and a half years from now, we'll have this locked in. We'll have the the exact verbiage of how this, uh, this intro should go. The uh, website for this show is mentalpod.com. That's also the Twitter name that you can follow me at, mentalpod. And... Um, Especially if you're a monthly donor, please follow me on Twitter because when I make a new cutting board that I am uh, giving away to a monthly donor, I will tweet it. And then that is time for you to send in your guesses to me. Um, I am going to kick things off with a letter that I got from from a guy named Adam. And he writes, uh, Dear Paul, I come from a family and background where feelings are not discussed, and for 10 years I dealt with my depression, anxiety, and neurotic obsessing without telling a soul. Listening to such honest, open, and supportive conversations is inspiring. Every time you or a guest describe some aspect of their illness, and I have that moment where they're giving words to such feelings that for me have been inexpressible, I feel a little bit less alone. And I am so alone right now. I recently opened up to my parents, and they are completely dismissive. But the worst part has been that I told a woman that I love very much about my illness because I have ruined several relationships in the past by not being open about this, and she is gone now as well. The sad part is I can't really blame her. Who would want this when there are people in the world who are okay? I love your podcast, but being open hasn't worked all that well for me. I think I'll just stick to what I know, reading books and keeping my mouth shut. Uh, and I wrote Adam back and uh, said, uh, Adam, thanks for your email. Your family may never understand you, but there are tons of people, including women, who will. I think it's great that you found out now that a woman couldn't handle it rather than five years into a marriage and a couple of kids. Every year, the stigma gets less and less, so don't lose hope. I hope one day you will be able to tell anyone about your depression without shame. I've gotten to that place, and it's really nice and peaceful. You just have to stop caring what people think. Easier said than done. I highly recommend support groups so you can experience people who don't judge because they're just like you. That's my two cents on that one. And I want to read, this is from the Shame and Secrets survey. Uh, All kinds of good stuff at the website. Please go check it out. There's a forum. There's a half dozen different surveys you can take. You can also see how people responded to the surveys. And this is from the Shame and Secrets survey. And it was filled out by a woman. Calls herself Lisa Marie. She's straight. She's in her 30s. Was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional. Um, She writes, My immediately family became uh, a little dysfunctional because our extended family is totally chaotic. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, no. She she writes, um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I consider committing suicide as a form of revenge towards all the people that have hurt me so they feel the blame for the rest of their lives. However, I know that the majority of those people would only be relieved that I finally did it. What are the sexual fantasies most powerful to you? She writes, I like the idea 
of toys and costumes. I like some pornography and I'm open-minded about experimenting because I think those things uh, help keep a relationship fun. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, I've told two of my previous partners about wanting to use toys and dressed up for one of them. Neither of them were interested at all and felt as though I was telling them that they weren't good enough for me. One of them was not very good in bed, so I guess he was correct. I will tell my future partners about this until I find someone who wants to play nicely with me. Deepest Darkest Secret, she writes, When I was three or four, an older girl cousin of mine and I found my uncle's stash of playboys. For a while after that, we would pretend to take photos of each other, posing like those ladies without our clothes on. I'm not sure my cousin remembers that, and I won't ask her if she does. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Um, I'm not sure why she put this in in this sentence under that question. I think it should have gone with the other one. She writes, while masturbating, I will watch myself in the mirror and try to make myself appear more attractive. Um, well, thank you for your, your honesty, uh, Lisa Marie. And um, yeah, I say keep keep looking until you find somebody that, uh, that plays nicely with you. And um, I've masturbated in front of a mirror. I think everybody's jerked off in front of a mirror at some point. Never seen my cum face, though. I don't think I would want to see my cum face. I think that would horrify me. But, uh, yeah, I've done the mirror thing. Never done a funhouse mirror. That'd be a good time. Get it just right, make your dick look like a Zeppelin. And as you come, you could just scream, Oh, the humanity. Everybody yeah. I know is bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I couldn't stand you in the audition. I couldn't stand yeah. you. Yes, yeah. awful. Yeah. I was drunk. And I learned that I could solve my problems. And said. Through violence, since I couldn't communicate. Lonely? Yes. I'm afraid that my genitalia is ugly. That's hurtful. And what was your role in the robbery? I mean, you never knew what you were going home to. I had a jar that had teeth in it. I was a wreck. Other people's teeth? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here with a fellow comedian. Lori Kilmartin, who uh, no relation. How many pe- how many times is, did people ask if you were related? Uh, uh, Jimmy Pardo. It's, they seem to always go to Jimmy Pardo, and then he want people want him to suss it out because <laughs> Pardo always comes up to me and, and tells me people ask if you're related to Gilmartin. Although, do you know it's it's it, the name is from the same family in Ireland? Oh, it is. It's like Kill and Gil are kind of like uh, they mean the same thing. They mean Church of. So we might be cousins way, 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 Really? Way back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, then we can't do this. <laughs> no relatives? We're is done. that your rule? I had We're no idea. Done. <laughs> Lori is a very funny uh, stand-up comedian. She's a writer for Conan, and she has a book out called Shitty Mom. Uh, so you wrote this with, with some other women mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. And uh, I want to read you uh, a little blurb at the top of it from Jessica Seinfeld. Uh, is that uh, Jerry's wife? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm a detective. Uh, she she uh, says, the most inappropriate parenting book I've ever read. Loved it. 
at uh, it uh, cracked the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, for a week, and then it fell back off. Way to deflect that compliment. <laughs> per- perfect guest for the show. I, I complimented Lori on the uh, the nice neighborhood that she lives in, and she immediately deflected that. And well, I had nothing to do with the neighborhood. I just but you live here. here. Can't you accept the compliment of, of about the neighborhood that yeah. you live in? All right. I so relate. By the way, <laughs> it feels weird. It's like burlap. A compliment. You just want to go, but don't you understand all these other things that are wrong with it? You feel like you're being, like you're being phony if you accept something. I live in Burbank and it's fine, but I can't accept a compliment because it's not, it's not mine. I don't love it and I don't want to die here. Like I, I just want to live here and get out when I'm done. What, what is it about Burbank that you, you, you feel like it, it, it's, it's exactly, people look down on it or is it too suburban or no, what? It's too suburban. It's exactly like my hometown of Walnut Creek, California. And I, I wanted to get out of there as soon as I could, and uh, I, I I started with my my kid was born in New York City, and I wanted him to be a city kid, like a tough New Yorker. You know, I loved those people when I met him, and you know, I came out here because of a job, and um, which was great. But I was like, oh, he's gonna be a Burbank kid. <laughs> it's gonna be like me. Oh, you you th- and and what is that? What does that mean? Just you know, go away when you see a big building like. I, I, <laughs> You know, the first time we went to New York, I, like my eyes blew out of my head, and I was like 32. You know, I I just hadn't seen anything like it, and I wanted him to be, you know, uh, navigating the subways when he was eight, and uh, you know, all that stuff. Just just be kind of um, on top of that, and not be so stunned by it at, at an adult age. And you know, I could take him to visit, I guess, but it just it's just different growing up here. So naivete, or a lack of having experienced things is not a not a good thing that's 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 something to I guess so. You know, I do, I would, I just feel like I, I was so far behind in knowledge uh, when I moved to New York as as a, a grown-up. Like, I want him to start where I had, as an eight-year-old, where I started as a 30-year-old, you know? Like, I want to give, let him skip a couple decades of dumbness. <laughs> and, and the pain of finding out. Yeah. Because people do take advantage of those that are, that, that are naive, and obviously we're, we'll get to a portion of your life story that you, that you shared with me uh, one night while we were performing uh, together. Um, but there, there is, um, I, lo- I completely lost my train of thought. Na- uh, New York City, naive buildings. Yeah, yeah. There, there is, um, there is a danger wandering out into the, the world of people that are, that have more street smarts. Oh my God, yeah. And what are some examples, before we get to the biggest one in your life, um, what are some examples from your life that, that you can think of that were kind of especially painful where you, where you look back on it and you thought, God, I was so naive? Well, you know, I, I, what I remember, it wasn't a naive feeling, but like being on the train in New York City the first time and I was, and I made eye contact with somebody. I'm like, Oh my God, like I didn't, do I have to talk to them now? And I, I didn't, there, I didn't realize that, you know, like you could stare at somebody for like 10 seconds and then move your eyes to another place. And that's the end of the interaction. And, and it was almost letting people know, like, I see you and don't touch me, <laughs> you know? And, and I think before I would, you know, I would look at someone, I'd smile and I'd be like, Oh, they like me. And I, I would just be really worried about what they thought about me. And I think in New York, I learned to sort of be the uh, kind of aggressor in a way of like, I'm looking at you. 
and I'm I'm making sure you're not following me, and I'm I'm keeping eyes on you. Really, it's a, really, it's a shift in thinking. I think that I hope my you know I guess I didn't want my son to be, you know, um, you, you know it's that that um, that Daryl Daryl Hannah movie where she I forget she's coming to. Um, an elephant. She's like a prehistoric person. Uh, she's coming to an elephant, right? And she's got the. Is that Clan of the Cape? Yes, yes, yes. And sh- so she's in like this defensive position, and she's reaching up with like weeds or something, and saying, "I'm, I'm, um, bowing to you." And it, that's kind of how I felt growing up. Like that was my position to people. Was like, you know, I'm, de- I'm, I'm harmless. Please don't hurt me. And I think in New York, it sort of switched around to, um, I won't let you harm me. What what was the change? Do you remember? Um, I I I really remember it just being knocked around there and just have having people be really aggressive to my face and then walking away and and it's like someone would be nasty or something and then they wouldn't kill me and I'd be like oh you that can just be the end of the interaction like I, I just it doesn't always, escalate yeah it doesn't always escalate right to something horrible that you can't understand it could just be like get out of the way and then they walk away <laughs> right. and they're done with you and they're not mad at you they were just mad for a second you were in their way you know and I uh, I just remember a lot of that on the train where people would just mean mug you, just stare at you, and you're like, oh, God, this person's going to murder me. And then they, they move their eyes to the next person or down, and it's, they give the floor the same dirty look, and you're like, oh, that's just them. That's their New York face, you know? That, that's so sad. <laughs> it really, I guess it is. I mean, I've been to New York, yeah. but not long enough to experience it changing my my demeanor you know los angeles i'm sure you would would agree yeah has its own kind of solitary feel but it doesn't have that aggression it's more like people avoid eye contact because they don't want to kind of i don't i don't know why yeah did do you experience that do you do you feel that it's different here it's it seems just everyone seems nicer here i guess i i don't hmm I haven't noticed that. Do you feel like it's like Walnut Creek? Yes, I you just, do. In a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's fine. Like I'm like it's like it's fine. But I, I guess for me that that realization that you know you could be tough, and that doesn't doesn't mean you're an asshole. You're just defending yourself was eye opening. And and I didn't get that till I till I was in New York, and I I was really emotionally pushed around a lot like the first year, and then I, I went out with a guy who was Russian. And, you know, grew up in, uh, you know, Brighton Beach area. And so he was super, super, like, calloused in a way that I was like, you know, nothing can hurt this person. That's so amazing. And so I, I copied him a lot. And uh, I ended up living in Harlem, you know, for many years. Like Just, I just... because you were a prostitute or <laughs> the food um, was better? Yeah, the, it's, it pays better than spots. Um, but uh, Spots is a comedy term for, uh, in, in New York, uh, when you go up do and perform, set. You get do like a set, yeah, you know, like a five or ten minute set, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I just, I once I kind of got used to it, I really, I liked it. You know, I just sort of liked that I could exist there. I would imagine it allows you to relax, relax when you can tap into that part of your. And I'm imagining it because I've never been able to experience putting on that kind of tough thing. But I would imagine yeah. when when you begin to own that. Um, what 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 does that feel like when you when you begin to get comfortable? I guess like I, I, um, is it a good feeling? Sure, yeah. It's like 
you lose the fear of people thinking you're mean because you're like because you go oh, I'm not mean I'm just owning my space you know and I'm 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 uh, efficient yes yes yeah 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 and I was for a long time just way too worried that people would think I was mean or that I was you know rude and and I would spend you know a lot of time going over an interaction with somebody in my head and going how did, how was I perceived and and worrying about it and I think in New York. You know, one thing you don't have time to go over interactions because <laughs> there's so many. Because you're just, if you know, you're bumping into people all day long. You're just, if you're out at all, you're just. There's people are on the streets all the time. You N- can't parse every single. <laughs> Not a lot of searching for the perfect phrase to ask someone <laughs> no. to please. Yeah. Step to the left. Right, right, right. You know, and, and then there's all these different cultures interacting, so people are a little more brusque anyway. There's, you know, there's some harsher cultures living there too. So. I would imagine too, because there's language barriers that you do get fed up with people that don't understand what you're trying to say. So you eventually learn the international language of, if I say it aggressively enough, they'll figure out it's one of two things, get the fuck out of the way or, you know, something else. Right, right, right. I guess so. Um, Whatever it is, it's a mix of all that stuff. It it felt great. And I felt like, ah, I should have been born here. I wish I was born here. If I was born here, I, if I'd have started at this place instead of spending thirty years to get here, I would own. I would rule the world. <laughs> you know. Well, let's talk about that. What were some things in your life that not not having that gene right negatively affected you? What what are what are some things that come to mind? Well, do you want to talk about the the thing? The the thing? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, it's and I've been trying to figure out how to like start that story. I don't know. <laughs> Lori, uh, before we started recording, Lori uh, expressed some anxiety that that she wasn't going to be able to that you were going to get a. a, a misrepresent a fact or yeah. do something wrong and and I suggested to you that you that you just address this anxiety up front so the the audience yeah. knows that you are doing your best to try to piece together uh, exactly what went down when and where and and I assured you the okay. listeners are on your side they're okay. they're not they're not here to 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 try to shoot you down they they know that this you're recounting of this is coming from a a good place okay so i was a jane doe in a a very large case and i and i was of you know i was one there's a couple levels of jane does and i was the one that i was in the level that was the least harmed so i don't want to you know act like i'm not like this huge victim in this thing because some of my friends are but i'm not um what are you feeling right now (laughs) I'm okay. Um, Can you describe what you're what you're feeling? What kind of emotion you're feeling right uh, now? Tears in my throat. So my swim coach was um, sentenced to forty years in prison for twenty counts of child molestation in two thousand ten, and I was contacted about the case in two thousand eight. Um, you know they were trying to they were trying to establish a, a history of abuse. He was he was um, arrested for abusing a fourteen year old in San Jose, um, <clears throat> and 
this would be, I guess, in 2008 when he was arrested for that, or 2000, no, 2009? I forget, one of those two years. See, well, that's one thing where I'm going to confuse stuff. That's okay. I, I think the specific okay. years is, is, okay. is not that important. What what years were you exposed to him? Well, uh, many years. I, I swam for him from like 83, no, excuse me, 70, 83 was like the year I graduated, 77? To, or seventy eight to eighty three. It was it was it was a, I was a swimmer. Okay, and, and was this a high school coach? Um, uh, it was an AAU coach. A what? A, a, a amateur athletic union, like oh, okay. um, full year round swimming. When I was when I was a kid, we we swam there in Northern California, and I think probably other parts of the country too. There's we there's like summer rec leagues. And it was called rec swimming, and and uh, it was like really fun. <laughs> Short for recreation. Yes, yeah. And so we would go from like May till September, and um, so I was pretty good in that in those areas, and then in that arena. Uh, and then there's a second level of swimming that was then called AAU swimming, which is year round. You know, you know, uh, two workouts a day. You're just kind of like a travel team. Complete commitment. Yeah. yeah, it you know it totally changes your life if you decide to go AAU. That was like the phrase that we used. Was like, are you going to go AAU yet? You know, I don't know, because your whole family has to get involved, and they have to support you and want to drive you to workouts at five thirty in the morning and stuff. So, I I was swimming wreck. His wife was my coach. Um, and how old were you at that point? Like 12, 12. Okay. And um, my opinion, by the way, is that his wife was one of his first victims because she was a swimmer of his and he married her when she was very young. But I don't know that she would have agreed with that and she okay. has since passed away. Um, but uh, he was, he was a, an AAU coach. And so I, I, I would swim AAU for, there's a certain amount of time where a rec swimmer could swim AAU and that's till December 31st. And if you went to one workout after December 31st, you were officially um, ineligible to swim rec swimming. So it was like a big thing of, do I leave all my friends on the rec team and go on this hardcore AAU team? And I, I, I did two years where I, I swam for the winter. And then the third year, I think I, I decided to go AAU big time. And I ended up, swimming for Andy um, because I knew him the best and and uh, um, I, I just didn't occur to me not to swim for anyone else because he, he presented himself and it, his reputation was that he was a great coach and he was going to um, bring out you know whatever you had in you to uh, be a great swimmer so I sort of picked him and then um, you know I kind of look back at that time as being sort of in a cult in a way because I, I was completely devoted to him and I and um, uh, I really like worshipped him, you know, which put me in a bad place, <laughs> a bad situation. It's in a bad position to be in you know, the to first, worship a coach. The first thought that occurs to me, the things <clears throat> that I've watched about predators, mm -hmm. is. The, there's a grooming totally. phase yes. where they gain your trust and then they isolate you from those around you yes. because then they can begin to distort your reality so that you don't believe what is happening to you yeah. is a crime. Right, 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 right. And yeah. I would imagine that groundwork has already been laid yes. in 
a situation like this because it can all be couched in terms of you need to do this for the sport oh, yeah, for yeah, yourself yeah. this is for you this is the best for you and, well, and it's also like, again like what the uh, the uh, i don't even want to say abuse because compared to what he did to some friends of mine it was really minimal and it, Lori, what it really if was somebody though. contacted you right and your name appeared in court it how was it well okay well, can we talk about what what happened to you? Okay, uh, then then yes. we can talk about whether or not that was. Well, I was eighteen when it happened to me, and the, the it's weird. Like I have a, one very stark memory of something I know that he tried to do, and then I have fuzzier things about you know, and I hate describing it because it sounds like the plot of like half of porn movies. <laughs> the coach rub down, but you know, if you're getting a rub down from your coach, um, you shouldn't be alone in a hotel room with them. You know what I mean? And, and it's a weird situation where like a hand goes a little bit too far and you, and you're like, did that just happen? And well, that couldn't have happened because that's Andy. You would never, you know, it must be me. I must be a pervert or crazy. <clears throat> so I think some stuff like that happened, but I don't have like clear memories of that, but I have a clear memory of of this one incident but i was 18 so it wasn't illegal it was just like you know too bad <laughs> listen to the emotion that you have mm -hmm. and then ask yourself would somebody who didn't experience abuse feel the emotion that you feel i don't know i i mean i i'll I just and I'm I'm just saying like legally it wouldn't it wouldn't be considered abuse in court. Lori, <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> I, I know the feeling because I I couldn't use the word abuse mm -hmm. that happened to me right because I felt like that made me a baby that made me an exaggerator, but I had the same emotions come up. Somebody abused my trust. Somebody right. tricked me into a situation yes. that felt weird yes. to me. Yes, 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 yes. That is abuse. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I just look at it as a, as a you testifying on a stand or not. It would be like a lawyer could just say, well, that's emotional abuse. So that's your problem. You know, my, my opinion is what is done to your body is separate from what is done to your soul. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when somebody right. mishandles your soul, mm -hmm. that is the thing that fucks us up because yeah. it is denying who we are as a human being and it's taking away our dignity. Yes. I agree. It's totally wrong. I just don't want to equate it with what happened to, you know, um, some other girls on my team who were, who were you know, um, raped at really young ages and I don't want to act like I'm trying to say what happened to me is equal to what happened to them even though it affected me quite a bit I understand I understand and, and <clears throat> the being tricked by somebody is the part that you that you guys all share mm -hmm. and that feeling of being somebody's object. Right. And can you talk about 
what you your soul feels from what was done to you? Um, I'll tell you afterwards. I he he tr- he tried to have sex with me. Um, when you were 18? When I was 18. I, w- I came home from college. Um, I was on the some winter break. I was swimming for UCLA. So I come home. Uh, this is, 19, this is uh, 1983 going into 84. So the Summer Olympics are coming up. They're being held in L.A. Like every swimmer is just like. It's their fantasy. Completely obsessed, right. And um, and so he's, he said, well. I want you to come by the house because I was str- I was doing a- I was struggling at UCLA. I was doing okay, but it wasn't. I was it was so wanting a breakthrough, and it wasn't happening. Um, swimming wise, I wanted a breakthrough, and um, <clears throat> so I went to his house, and his wife wasn't home, and they were there at this point. Their marriage is unraveling, which I didn't know, and. Um, so he starts, you know, we're mapping out me and how I can, you know, what I can do to make to make a qualifying time for the Olympic trials, which would for me would have been just like really cool. I was never going to make the Olympic team, but I could swim in the trials, which would be like something to tell your grandchildren or whatever. Um, so then he just kind of jumped on me, you know, and I remember just being like so shocked. I couldn't move and I was and I was like I was part of me is like is this happening and the other part of me is like oh yeah this one's happening <laughs> like part of me is like holy shit the, the other all the other times I was able to go I'm making this up some part of my brain is like this is real and and um and I I I was just sort of frozen and I couldn't believe it um and I don't know what I would have done um and I was I mean, this, that's all that happened, and I was devastated by it. But here's the thing that saved me. What do you mean, well, that's all that happened? That's it. But, but listen, Diane, his wife, got fired that day, and she came home, and he, he leapt off of me, and, 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 he, and she was upset because she got fired, and um, he's like, oh, you got to go. And I left, and I just remember leaving his house, and I was like, what did I do? And I... You know, I was wearing dolphin. Sh- this is what you know: dolphin shorts, blue dolphin shorts. That's what the uniform of swimmers at that time, and you know, just like a shirt and um, thongs. And um, I just remember going, "I I can't believe I wore this." <laughs> and then, within three months, I had dropped out of school. I, be- I before that, I, I was bulimic. Before that, like. Um, and then it just got really bad. I stopped going to classes from January to like March. I stopped going to classes and I would just go to morning workout and I would get rid of food all day in between workouts and then go to workout again. And then I was failing classes and, and, and even I in my denial was like, wow, this isn't going the way I wanted it to. <laughs> so I was like, let me just drop out and figure out what happened. And I never remembered what Andy did. I just totally forgot about it. And um, so I was like, I'm going to go home and kind of... You mean you forgot the event or specifically yes, what he did? I forgot the event, okay. totally. And um, let me go home and just work on myself. And, and I actually thought, I, you know what? It's my coach's fault, my UCLA coach's fault. I need to be swinging for Andy. Like, <laughs> I didn't... I, 
I don't know what happened. My brain just pushed that thing and put it in a box. And I was like, Andy's my coach, you know? And um, it's like a home. And I, and I start swimming again on my AU team. And it's, you know, at this point, I'm gaining weight at, at this at break, you know, a breakneck speed, I guess, and, and just completely falling apart. And I just feel like all the other swimmers, you know, all my class of swimmers that left and went to college, I'm the only one that came back. And I'm just... And why am I there? You know, it's like going back to high school, basically. And um, and then I I started. Um, he hired me to be his assistant coach at my old high school swim team. He coached my high school swim team too. There's no getting away from Andy. <laughs> um, so I was assistant coaching there, um, and um, I I I was like 200 pounds at this point. I was so humiliated. I was so embarrassed but I was trying to I was trying to figure out what happened how did I how did it just fall apart and then I remember this girl and I have to change her name because she's not one of the does okay her name I'll call her Pamela was a swimmer. She was one year younger than me. So she was still on the AAU team. She's a senior in high school. And she said, did you hear about Andy and Debbie? And Debbie, Debbie, um, Debbie was in, she's kind of gone public with this. Like she was on a 2020 interview and ESPN with her full name. So I'll just call her Debbie, but mm-hmm. she's gone public. Um, he said, she's, Pamela said, Andy, I heard Andy's having sex with Debbie. And Debbie was like, 14 at the time and when I heard that then I remembered what happened to me and I was furious and I told him jumping on top of you when his wife came home yes I'm like uh, what and and like things you know when your life is blurry and then all of a sudden things like get sharper you know and I felt that sharpening of focus and um I told Pamela about this and and we decided to to go to Debbie and tell her what happened to me. And I, I can't remember if this happened before or after, but I called three other girl swimmers and I said, Andy did this to me. Did he do anything like this to you? And, and one of them hung up on me immediately, which to me, and I look back, I'm like, that's a yes. And somebody, somebody said, so I can't remember what she said, but it was, it was vague. And, and again, like I'm, you know, 18 or 19 and I am not a detective and I'm, and I'm, I can barely remember what happened to me. So I'm, I'm not picking up on people's, you know, obvious, um, signs. And I was like, okay, that maybe, maybe. And so I never got a a yes from anybody on the phone, but I got a, a really quick hang up from somebody who, who became extremely anorexic. Um, so anyway, so all the knowledge I had was me. And um, I, Pamela and I went to Debbie's house and I said, this, this happened to me. I just wanted you to know that. And, and um, I, I don't remember everything that happened at her house. She later told me that she remembered telling me that I was wrong about her and Andy. And I remember leaving her house going, oh, well, fuck everybody. I tried, and and thinking I'm done done with all of these people. I'm done with everything. I tried. 
and um I, I somehow I, I showed up for swim practice because I was still coaching at Cronolette, my high school, and, and he was a head coach and I was coaching and he, he showed up. Maybe I had the workout and he wasn't supposed to be there, I forget, but he showed up and it, and it was at the end of practice, so the, the swimmers are getting out and it was just me there. And I remember it was, it was like, I don't know, maybe six o'clock at night. So it, was, it wasn't, it was still light out, you know, it's springtime. Um, but he was furious and he said, what did you tell Debbie? And, and, and I told her, I I told her what you did to me. And he said, I I forget everything he said, but I remember that he said, I'm in love with her. I'm going to marry her. I would dig ditches to, to be with her. And And she's 14. She's 14. He's like 38 or something. And I, I remembered you like going dig ditches <laughs> like that's not a job <laughs> um but i but i also remember like he looked crazy to me and i and i remember thinking um i have to get out of here because i don't feel safe i feel like he could kill me he was so angry that i blew it i blew his cover i guess or something and th- then i don't know how things wound down you know I, you know, I, I stayed with the team, the swim team at coaching till the end of the season. It might've been happening towards the end of the season. And then, then I just sort of left swimming and I left, I, d- I didn't go back to UCLA. I just sort of floated for a couple of years and tried to figure things out. And, and, and I, I just remember thinking it was only me and it was only Debbie and Debbie wasn't admitting to it. And I don't know what, uh, like, okay, bye everybody. And, um, and then I just kind of went on my own way and, you know, for a long time, just thought I was the only one, something messy happened to like, I, I guess I thought, I don't know what I thought with Debbie. I, I guess I thought it was okay with her. And the other thing is like, it's so weird. Cause I, it's so obviously illegal, but it wasn't obviously illegal at the time. And his relationship with that. Yes, that was happening openly with other coaches and swimmers in the 70s and 80s. You know, there's a famous case with a fr- another friend of mine, you know, who had a relationship with a coach named Mitch Ivey, and everybody knew about it. And she was like 16 or 15 at the time, and he was also like 38 or something, which I know is weird because, you know, that's sort of like people are, guys are like, oh, high five, but it's really not good. <laughs> you know, it's really not right. And if, if you, you know, if you think that's cool, you're doomed to have a daughter. I just <laughs> and, and, and the other thing too is at that age, you think that as long as you're a sexual being at that point, oh, you don't have to be 18. We're adults now. Yeah. We have pubic hair. Mm-hmm. We masturbate, you know, mm-hmm. whatever but you don't understand until you get to be 30 and you see a 15-year-old. Oh, and then yes, you think, holy oh, God, fuck, how did I think that was okay? Right, right. And that's what parents try to tell their kids and their kids don't understand because they, they don't have that perspective yet where they yes. can see how innocent they are. Yeah. They think they know everything. It's weird. Like in the case with Mitch and this friend of mine, um, and that that was also a big story on ESPN too. Remember why I was working at Spellbinders in Houston, and it came on TV before a show. I'm like, holy shit! I know her. I know them. Oh my god, this is crazy. And um, 
you know, that's the only time I knew it was considered bad was when he was, you know, he was eventually run out of coaching for doing that to a whole bunch of other swimmers too. That's the thing. Like if it happened to you once, it's he, the person's probably doing it to other people, yeah. you know? And I, I, um, yeah. Um, it's weird. Like it, when I, when this whole, when I was contacted in 2008 about this 14-year-old, I was like, I can't believe he's still coaching. Like, from what I understood... This was another 14-year-old. Oh, yeah. This is 14-year-old San Jose. He, um, in 2008, I mean, he, 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 the first, if the, I have the court document here, but the first document, a girl in 78, um, 1978 on Aquabears. And, you know, 30 years later, He's still coaching, and and there and there were rumors. Every time he would quit a team, there it would be because of these rumors with him, and he would somehow get a job on another team, and like nobody made a phone call or an you know email or anything. It was it's kind of crazy, but um, I remember just going, I can't believe that guy's still in this business. I can't believe it, and and then when everybody everybody kind of came out of the woodwork. Not not everybody. I still have a couple friends that I swam with that I I'm pretty sure were abused and they were so upset they couldn't even like participate in a, a doe case like be it just tell the story upset personally about what happened to them or i think a, so okay i think there's i've there's one in particular a, a friend of mine who i don't even she just couldn't even talk about it um and has had a very hard life and was before that a, an incredibly talented swimmer like an amazing distance swimmer. <sighs> you know the thing that that strikes me as you tell as you tell your story. Um, the survey that I have on the on the website, the Shame and Secrets survey. People talk about some of the darkest things that they think or feel, and the darkest things that have happened to them. And almost always, people that have been sexually abused the first thing they list on their darkest thoughts is thoughts of suicide. And as I began to see dozens after dozens after dozens of people and see that link between being abused, having your trust abused, and becoming suicidal, it makes me think that that injury to your soul and the injury to your trust makes you view the world as such an incredibly unsafe place because if this person who I put all this trust in, mm -hmm. who was supposed to guide me, right. Right, right. could do this thing to me, what in the fuck is the rest of the world going to treat me like? Mm -hmm. And who wouldn't want out of that, of a world like that when you're feeling down, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling whatever... And the thing I would say to those people is there are people that will love you and will trust you. Because I get emails from people that feel hopeless, that feel like they're never going to connect with people that they can trust or love. And they're never going to be able to relax. They're always going to be cutting themselves right. or be bulimic or right, whatever right. to cope with that anxiety of I'm stuck in this world where the people that love you cause you the most pain how can i how can i go forward again and the thing that i that, that i would say is 
get into a support group, go to therapy. The, the same shit sure. I say over and over again. Yes, there are people out there that want to want to hurt us and want to hurt children, but there are so many people who have been hurt like you who can help you heal, who can help you navigate the world and bring back that feeling of trust. I have so many friends in my life who I trust with my life and it just reminds me that the world is an extreme place yeah. of extreme love mm-hmm. and trust and also the the other end of the spectrum. And I, and I just wanted to interject that because I have the feeling there are some people listening to this interview with you right now who feel exactly like you do, who's, because their case wasn't dramatic, because mm-hmm. there wasn't penetration, right. Right. cannot get to that place of having compassion for them selves and can't look at those cuts on their soul and say this is a real thing that happened to me this really hurts and this is valid injury to my soul yeah it's embarrassing that it hurts so much because it's i mean like you know i've never felt suicidal i've just been fucking pissed (laughs) um but uh you know the girls who he, you know, one at least on my t- just on my team, one was ten years old and one was eleven when he started with them. You know, they've had a very hard time. They were ten and, and eleven when he abused them. Yes, he started with them when he started touch the touching. Like I don't know when what whatever things went and where. So he way. would use the massage as. Yes, I think Debbie said that he pulled over. Um, at a swim meet, he was driving her home after a swim meet and pulled over in a park and started kissing her when she was 11. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I don't know when things escalated beyond that, but um, but the, the 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 kid the kids who very were very young when he started with them had had a much harder time. I mean, myself and a couple other girls were older when he would do stuff like that, like. Um, he courted another one of my friends, you know, in a really weird fashion, um, and she didn't know what to do. And and it's it's always been one of those things like it, that's like this blurry, icky stain, but it but it you know it's not as cut and dried as you know r- like a a rape, you know, which is a horrible thing, and you know it's a horrible thing. And and so the the people like. I, I kind of feel like when I look at the timeline, you know, and it, this might not be tr- this might not be accurate. This is just my impression is that um, when his marriage was breaking up was right around 1983, 84, and that's when he started kind of dabbling with us. And then it got the next year kind of fell apart, and I think that's when he started targeting the ten and the eleven year old. And the other thing is there was a whole crew of older girls on our team that we had all gone to college. You know, the class of 83, class of 84 went to college and all of a sudden, I, I, I think about this a lot, these two girls, Lynn and Debbie, were kind of like almost left alone. You know, like they just didn't have this pack of girls to, just to walk out of the locker room with to the parking lot. If you're walking with like, you know, 12 girls who are 17 and 18 and have butterfly or shoulders, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just a different thing than if, than if you're just walking out by yourself. Although they w- they not necessarily would have been in the same workouts as us, so maybe I'm conflating conflating a few things, but but we weren't there, and he 
his marriage is falling apart and he's a crazy monster, you know, and they, it seemed like they didn't have protection. Like, I feel like when we left, you know, we, we absorbed some of it. Like I absorbed a little bit of it. And the other two friends that I know got some absorbed a little bit of his crazy. And then we were kind of too old for him. And when we were gone, the ones that were young enough for him were there and there's no one to stop it by the office after workout and interrupt. Yeah. You know, even people that were raped will say, I enjoyed it because I had an orgasm. So I must've been asking for it. They must've seen something in Mm -hmm. me. Not, not all people. Right. But there, so when you're, when you're saying to yourself, and I'm saying this as much to people out there listening. When you're saying to yourself, somebody had it worse, if if something had happened that was verifiably, absolutely illegal, then I would get some type of relief and be able to feel compassion for myself. <laughs> yeah. it, no. Right. No. It, it, go, it is endless because you cannot believe the mind control that somebody like that can have. Be oh, yeah, it he was in my head. Yes, I mean, my, you know, I was in a, and unfortunately, you know, it, there was a perfect space for him in my head because, um, you know, I was with him at least four or five hours a day just being in practice. And then my dad was working overseas. He almost left the day I turned 12. Like, like, you know, looking back, it's like, we all, that's the worst time to leave your daughter is when, when, uh, when they turn, then they start to turn into a teenager, you know, but no one knew that back then. Mm -hmm. No one knew any of that shit. And it was, it's almost like textbook. He, he went overseas. Um, and, I needed a dad and I picked like a monster, <laughs> you know. And I would imagine Andy worked overtime to plant the seeds of Andy's a good guy. Oh my God. So that yes. you would be confused. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll, talk about, talk about the good things that, that he did and the nice things that you would think about him so that people can understand what makes it so cloudy with a guy like that. Well, just when you have a, you know, a good workout, he would, he would tell you what you're doing right and just say, yeah, I I see some muscle on your, I remember I see some muscle finally on your back, good back muscle finally. And just any sort of compliment like that, you would live on it for weeks, you know? Um, And he would, he would, he was famous for, at least among swimmers, we would, first of all, we had brutally hard workouts. We were part of this. We were in the belief system of the more yardage, the better, you know? Uh, so the workouts were really hard. I mean, physically you were just broken down that way. And, um, he would stop working out in the middle of it and give us these lectures on character and how you can be a better person. And, and, you know, Oh my, they were uh, unbelievable. And you know what the weird thing is, is like, I rem- I would be riveted by these lectures, you know, while, while I'm shivering, but I would be like, he's right. He's right. You, we just have to be better. We have to, you know, I, I totally bought everything he said. And there were a couple of girls who were, who would like roll their eyes and flip them off when he turned around. And I'd be like, that is so disrespectful. And I would be angry at them and they didn't get fucked with. 
You know? Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. He totally. He could tell who'd. Oh, he I could, guess so. He yeah. could see the worshiping eyes and who's like rolling their eyes and spitting in the gutter. And, you know, there, there's definitely. And, and they were not fucked with, you know? The ones that thought he was full of shit and that were makes, just there because they were, wanted to be on a swim team. That makes total sense. But the ones like me who were just, you know, just believed the whole thing and wanted to be part of that world where. Where if you did what he said, everything would turn out okay. You know, that's what I wanted. I was also struck by, you know, early in the in our our conversation when you were talking about what what had happened to you, the fuzziness of it. That that is one of the things that I consistently hear and, and I've experienced that in my life as well. Because I think our brain doesn't want to go to that place and our brain has this built-in safety mechanism mm-hmm. to protect ourselves. When when a thought that is too overwhelming occurs to us, we have to file it away into some other folder. Yeah. But it never yeah. really gets put away. It comes out in addiction. Yeah. Or sure. Food. I had tons of food issues. Shutting down or becoming promiscuous. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. I had one incident right after a, a promiscuous incident. As an Irish Catholic, I would tell you, very terrible promiscuous incident. But it was right after I went back to college after the Andy thing. He was like my first kiss. It was gross. Wow. <laughs> I was, I was, re- I was like on a purity mission. I was not, you know, uh, I didn't date. I was just, I just wanted to be a swimmer. You know, I wanted to be as pure as the water I swam in. You know, I wanted water to run through my veins, not blood. And I wanted things to be a clear blue color. And, and the gatekeeper to that was this guy. Yeah. And then once he, he ruined it, I was like, oh, it's, it's ruined. So I did have like, I feel bad too. I was like, I had a little uh, fling, a very quickie with this guy on the crew team. And he was really nice and funny. And I was so embarrassed afterwards. I never talked to him again. And I was wanted to find him and go, I'm sorry. I was just crazy. Why you were, were you embarrassed? Um, cause I, I was like, I shouldn't be doing, I, I just felt like I, that was, I shouldn't have done it. You know, like you were loose. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, cause I went like from zero, no contact to full contact and, uh, you know, it, it, some, I guess, classic acting out or something. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what point I was trying to make at the end of it, of this rant ramble. Well, that's the other thing too, is it comes out in chunks. Yeah. When that person is trying to talk about something, you may not be ready for it to come up at that point. Mm-hmm. It has its own timetable. Oh, sure. It comes up when it comes up. And sometimes you can't f- force it. I don't think it ever hurts to talk about it, to be in therapy. Because for me, that's what helped loosen a lot of that stuff up. Yeah. Years of support group. It took years of me talking about that. My wife telling me, your mom is creepy with you. You have not processed this. 24 years of that. And in the 24th year... It came up. Wow. So if you think your brain doesn't do all kinds of sophisticated things to protect yourself from saying, I was tricked by a person who should have loved me unconditionally. I'll say that 100%. Yes. Before I forget, I want to read a <laughs> uh, an excerpt from your book, Shitty Mom, which you co-wrote with uh, Karen Moline. 
Alicia Ibarro and yeah. Marianne Zellner. Mm-hmm. Cor- am I pronouncing their names correctly? Yeah. Um, things you should do, and I just cracked this the the book open. I was just like, let me just read a random a random uh, chapter, and this is the one that I just randomly opened to, and it made me laugh. So I was like, I should read this. Things you should do in a different city before you go home. Doesn't matter where you are, London, Tokyo, or Cincinnati. It only matters where you aren't with the kids (laughs) stop checking in stop skyping they're fine and your freedom will end soon if you have even a few hours to yourself try doing one or all of these things browse how long has it been since you've gone to a bookstore and headed directly to the fiction aisle then stayed there for 20 minutes without wondering where your kid went or sitting through story time or spending ten dollars on a children's book that has 40 words in it uh how long has it been since you read a book where the print protagonist is a person, not a monkey or a dog or a tugboat? Be an optimist. Buy a book. Promise yourself you will finish it this year. You know you want to. After fin- And the, the, the next heading is you know you want to. After you finish feeding your brain, make time to visit a female-friendly sex toy shop. Buy a vibrator. <laughs> Let that old vag of yours relive her glory days. Come on. What else are you going to do in your hotel room tonight? I just love the the, the phrase <laughs> old vag. <laughs> that is. That's what I call it. <laughs> it is my favorite British pub. <laughs> uh, see an independent movie. It's not enough to see an R-rated movie at a mall movie chain. You'll run into kids there. This business trip is your vacation. It should be completely child-free. Go to one of those snotty independent movie houses that only show foreign films or American ones starring Maggie (laughs) Gyllenhaal. Feel good to be a grown-up again. Uh, Feels good to be a grown-up again, doesn't it? And then uh, the last heading is a bar. Shitty mom hesitates to bring this up because if you're the kind of person who needs to be reminded to drink alcohol, perhaps alcohol isn't for you. But if your hotel has a bar or you're in a city with cabs, there's no reason you can't get yourself buzzed before you take yourself back to your hotel room and put batteries in the vibrator. <laughs> I just love that. That's, oh, thanks. That's such a, um, such a funny way of, of telling people to, to, check out check out and remember to and remember to to have compassion for yourself and don't forget about about your needs um for people that grow up especially not thinking about what their needs are then becoming a mom where your needs are really hard to think about uh, i would imagine that's got to be really difficult you know it's it's i i feel like i'm trying to overcorrect because my parents were, were definitely checked out you know like a lot they were just not pay attention they missed a lot of cues right. <laughs> like shit was happening and they missed it completely and so i'm so aware of my son it's uh when he's gone like today he's gone he's not here on saturdays he's with his dad and it's, he's kidnapped <laughs> every week i schedule a kidnapping <laughs> um and it just i'm i I just completely relax. It's like being uh, in yoga, just not being around my son. Just like a, a complete relax, relaxation and muscles release and all that stuff. It feels really good. And, and then, then your battery's recharged when he does yes, come back yeah, and you're happy and, to see him. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I'm assume. <laughs> Let me put words in your yeah, mouth. Yeah, he's but. sick. So I'm always, it's like, it's fun. It's fun now. It's a lot of fun. I'm sure. That seems know, like a really fun age to have a, uh, for a kid to be. Yeah, he's cool. He's a lot of fun. I think anything, 
the window between they can wipe their own ass <laughs> and they aren't talking back yet. Yeah. That has got to be just the golden Right. Just the golden window right. for He's having a kid. Very close to wiping his own ass. He does request an assist every once in a while, sure. but um uh yeah, it's it's uh, it's fun. It's yeah. good. Nice. Yeah. So let's talk about uh your experience with with therapy. When did you first um go to to therapy? I went a, a little bit in my 20s after um this crazy waking and all this crazy stuff with food and I found a therapist that was kind of hooked into this um uh eating philosophy that is espoused by Janine Roth. She wrote a bunch of books. The first one that was great and meant a lot to me was Feeding the Hungry Heart. And it was sort of just um stepping away from um uh all your list of rules and your rituals and just eating whatever you want when you want to eat it and eat it till you're full and just learning to feel what it's like to be full and not eat till you're sick and not to punish yourself or you know just to whatever eating turned into like it it's got to revert back to I'm hungry and I need to feed myself you know so um I I went to a therapist for that for a while and that was really helpful and I went to OA meetings and stuff and and then um, as I started doing more and more stand-up and road work and moving to New York, it kind of just, you know, I, I didn't go to therapy or anything like that. I sort of stopped and really focused on stand-up. And then I, I went back again in um, when I was trying to save the relationship with my son's dad, which happened at the same time that the the trial was starting for Andy King. So it, all this stuff was being open, you know, cracked open and, and, um, it was a kind of a tough time. So that's when I went back into therapy, was not able to save the relationship, but I stayed with the therapist. And so he's really, really helped me a lot. So you've been with him a while. Yeah. A couple of years. Yeah. I think since Oh nine, I guess. Yeah. And talk about EMDR and what that was, you know, I, I kept going, oh, I'm not traumatized. I'm not like a, you know, I'm not an Iraq war veteran and, you know, I'm fine. I'm, you know, and it seems embarrassing to just be like, yeah, I need the same treatment as somebody who has their legs blown off, <laughs> you know? And, um, uh, but it's, they put, you hold these, I guess, I guess how it started and I'm, if I'm, you know, giving the history wrong, someone could probably correct on your message board. But um, uh, uh, someone, a woman was walking, a therapist was walking through the woods, and she was moving her eyes back and forth very, very quickly while she was going through something, like a pro some sort of memory. And she realized she felt kind of washed afterwards, and it, that it was just a memory, and it didn't have like as much of a, an emotional connection where she had to react to it. And so she. Um, uh, I guess I'm going to skip 40 steps. Now, what you do is you, you hold these two things in your hand, these two pulses, and you move your eyes back and forth while you know somebody walks you through some experiences that you might have had and walks you through some memories. And it seems to like... It like it's like a it unzips them from the memory from the pain and and you can like go back and remember something without you know wanting to die or or feeling whatever the intense feelings you're feeling and it can just be like you know another uh, uh, you know square on the quilt that is your life you know that's at some great, point that's a great way of uh, of putting it um, I, f I found a new therapist because my old therapist moved out of state and. We've done two weeks of it. Uh -huh. and, oh, wow. And I, the first, after the first week, I didn't know that that might have been the reason why I was feeling so fantastic, but I was, I was feeling great. I'd never, uh, I can't even, couldn't even remember the last time I felt that much vigor and optimism. Wow. And I, 
And I was, when I came back to see her, I was like, could it be that it's from the EMDR? She said, yeah, it's, it's, it's very likely. It, it Sometimes it takes weeks and weeks for, yeah. for it to, to take, but for some people it does happen right away. So I don't know if that's what the cause was, but I've heard enough people consistently say that EMDR really helped them. Yeah. That I think yeah. there is absolutely something there. And my therapist, what she just did was she just held her, um, I just followed her finger. Mine ended up doing that too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, then she had me on a balance board while she did oh, it as well and we just talked about and the, the thing that this is kind of embarrassing to talk about but the thing that she is really focusing on with me is i had um a surgery when i was two weeks old because my small intestine was too small and oh i was projectile vomiting everything that, that i was eating and she believes that there's a lot of stuff stuck there because and as we walk through it i was like you know i as I, as I try to picture a you know a, a baby starving and in the hospital and getting stitches and not having its mother, I I began to feel empathy for that little that yeah. little baby that was me. But my first reaction, which is what you had about yeah. your thing, which is to roll your eyes and go, "Oh Jesus, come on, yeah, right. get over it." Yeah, but maybe there's maybe there's something there. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the whole kind of what I want to. My long-winded way of, of, of saying that is just go with it. Just, okay, maybe it is corny. Maybe it is futile. What do you got to lose? Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I had a point, and I totally lost it, so please continue. <laughs> talking, about e- talking about EMDR, talking about um, valuing your, yeah. your story. Well, I guess it, this is this is maybe more of a jokey point, but, like, you have... You know, I think they they tested it on on soldiers with uh, post traumatic stress disorder from a war. You know, and and the, the, so it works for them. And you know, the rest of us that haven't been in a war, our you know, our trauma isn't the same as theirs, but it still affects your life. And it's, it's relative. So it's a port. Yeah, it's almost like porn is a portal to other parts of the web. There's like a, a, there's always an you know somebody okay. doing it first. It's either a soldier or a porn, but they're always leading the way for the rest of us to follow. So <laughs> something like that. Sorry. So what would you what would you say um as a result of being in therapy and doing the EMDR work and talking to somebody what would you say the difference is now with how you feel about your story Oh hmm I guess I just don't feel um I just it feels like Oh, this is the thing that happened. I mean, I know I got emotional when I was talking about it, but uh, uh, I, I do feel a great deal of um, uh, compa- uh, pain or compassion for the, these other girls that are on my team that things were happening to that I didn't know at the time. You know, um, and I uh, so that's that I you know I'm I'm fine with that always making me cry. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be so cavalier about that, but um, but it it just feels like. Yeah, this is a thing that happened, and it's just a, a little piece of my life, you know. And um, it, it definitely running away from it that w- t- that dominated my twenties and part of my thirties was kind of avoiding it, you know. Which is it's so strange. Like I think, God, if I did, you know, if, if I had gone right after this had happened or within a couple years, you know, would would I have gone down a different path? Because I wouldn't have been running so hard from this feeling of 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 I don't want to touch that area of my life, you know. 
So I don't know. I would say, I would say, you know, if you're struggling with how, whether you deserve to, you know, be treated or something, don't even think about what was done, whether it was, you know, you know, on a scale of one to 10 rape or one or whatever your, whatever your reaction to it is, is what you need to be paying attention to. So if, you know, you're, if uh, somebody harmed you on a scale of like two and it hurt you deeply and it hurt you more than somebody who got an eight, you know, I, I have no idea how to, figure out which 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 people are more sensitive than others but it doesn't matter it, it hurt you and it's uh it's getting in the way of you leading a happy productive life yeah. so you know d- stop worrying about whether it was enough damage yeah, you and, the know? Go- and the goal of this is not to then paint yourself as uh, a, a victim for the rest of your life this is to move you beyond yeah. feeling yeah. those feelings yeah, I mean, and we're all, we all, at, at the end of our lives, by the time we're 90, if we get to 90, we're all going to have been, you know, fucked, fucked around by, somebody. by a lot of people. Yeah, so, you know, it's just going to be, that's going to be one of the people that fucked you over was that, you know, in my case, that guy, you know? Yeah. Oh, well. And the other thing I would say that is great about therapy is then it makes you more alert and more ready to stick up for yourself should somebody try to do something that's abusive towards you again. Yeah, yeah. In case you're reliving, you know, you're you're trying to put it together. You're like, well, I couldn't fix this situation, but I'll go out with a guy just like this, and then I'll fix it. You know, you don't even know you're doing it. I can um, t- I can tell you how many surveys I read of people, mostly women, who were abused uh, very early, and then they get into abusive relationship after abusive relationship, and they wind up being raped like five times. Uh, and, and yeah, you know it. You and I'm not. I'm not blaming them for the 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 fourth and the fifth rape, but there is a vibe that you give when you don't heal that that a predator can spot from across the room that you are wounded and that they will be able to control you. Yeah, I do believe that. Pre- like that's how I th- I think how my coach picked his girls. Is he picked the again? Like I think I said before, I th- the one that talked. They back. picked the ones yeah. that that won't tell, and the ones that were rolling their eyes and thought he was you know an ass and all that. They they didn't get touched, you know. And not that you. So you're not a you're not a bad person because you weren't sassy when you were eight years old, you know. What who? However you were raised, you know you were raised, and um, it's not your fault. And and somebody unfortunately picked you you know but it's over now yeah anything else you want to you want to add before uh before we wrap up uh no you know what i i did remember what i wanted to tell you is i had done some emdr like the second time and i had a set at the improv that night (laughs) and you know my therapist has said you know you should walk around the block afterwards and don't do anything and i'm like yeah i I've been a comic for like 25 years. I think I can do a little set, you know, and I was on stage and, and I just felt like, like, uh, heavy and dreamy and, and I'm like, oh my God, it just get through this and risk, you know, just coaching myself to recite my jokes. And then I sort of meandered off stage. It was really strange. I don't recommend scheduling any sort of performance after EMDR therapy. I think one of the things that my therapist said was that it helps rewire the connections in your brain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I believe it. Yeah. yeah, I really do. I really do think there's some truth to it. And what do you got yeah. to lose? Yeah, you know? 
No, you, uh, yeah, I, I guess if you can, um, I was just going to say money if your insurance doesn't cover it, you know, but, uh, there's, you know, there's ways to get like Google low fee therapy in the name of your town or yeah. city. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to, to find stuff. And, uh, I, the, the therapist that I was using before she moved out of state was, that's exactly how I found her. And she worked oh, cool. on a sliding scale with me. She wasn't even licensed yet. She was still working toward, she, you know, had hours and hours and hours of working with other people. She, but she was one of the best therapists I've ever had. So oh, that's great. there are good ones, uh, out there. Is there, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to, uh, then thank you, by the way, for being so, uh, so vulnerable. You know, oh, I was really please, sure, couldn't help it. I'm trying for... to remember, I just don't want to make. Sh- I just want to make sure I, um, hope I didn't. If I miss an, if I mischaracterize anything, it's totally due to my memory. But um, I think I told it as exactly as I remember it. Yeah. You know. Do you want to do? Uh, did you do a fear list or a love yeah, list? Yeah, I did. I did them both. You want to start with uh, fears? Mm-hmm. Sure. Should I go, go first? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm afraid if I ever throw a dinner party, nobody will come. Uh, I'm going to be reading the fears of a listener named uh, Chris. Uh, I'm afraid that I'll actually get better and be unemployed, no disability benefits, or have to take a job that will be so shitty it will just make me relapse. I'm afraid I'll never have a day in my life where I don't wish I was 20 pounds thinner. Uh, I'm afraid that I'll never get better that they will never find a good treatment or a cure, and I'll die having lived most of my life in pain. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm afraid I'm either too strict or too lenient with my son's piano lessons, and an error in either direction will have lifelong implications (laughs) in his ability to enjoy things or work hard. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm not as smart as I like to think I am. Um. I'm afraid that managing my life is so much effort that I don't have anything left to do more, like, you know, write a sitcom, which we should all be apparently doing. I don't know how people write all day and then come home and write. I don't know their, either. Another project, I, so. I collapse at the end of every day. Um, Chris says, I'm afraid of taking a shower. I don't know why. Maybe it's being shut in a room alone with myself. Mm. I'm afraid that waking up at 6 a.m. will always suck, and I will have 12 and a half more years of waking up angry. Uh, I'm afraid of being alone in the house, helpless to take, take care of my own simple needs. I'm afraid somebody, someone will attack my son and I when we're sleeping, and I won't be able to protect him. I'm afraid of being in a car accident or contracting another illness or anything that will just multiply the pain and mental torture and debt that I'm already in. I'm afraid I will never finish a book ever again. <laughs> I will always read them halfway. I have, I have about seven books that so I'm halfway I. into I'm so right mad now. at myself. Uh, I'm afraid of being ignored, getting attention. Oh, being ignored and getting attention. That, that to me, is the human condition right there in a nutshell. <laughs> afraid of being ignored yeah. and afraid of getting attention. Yeah. Now, that tells me he's a comic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm afraid that when I'm 80, I'll look back at old tapes of my stand-up, realize I wasted decades thinking I wasn't funny enough when I was. Your stand-up is really funny. We performed on a show together uh, a couple of weeks ago, and every Thanks. fucking joke was just uh, so funny and well-written. Uh, some of it was old. Again, deflecting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm afraid of dying without having fulfilled my childhood dream of writing a novel. I'm afraid I'll never get Monty Python. Uh, I'm afraid that humans will destroy themselves in this beautiful planet and that I'm part of the problem. 
I'm afraid I'm going to freak out about aging, have plastic surgery, and then look ridiculous. Please call me before you have plastic surgery. You're a lovely woman, and it would be completely unnecessary. Falling apart. I think it's unnecessary on anybody. Thank but um, that's it for Chris's loves. Did you have any or uh, fears? Did you oh have any God. more? Yeah, um, I'm afraid I'm a Salieri, not a Mozart. Um, I'm afraid I'll never be comfortable around people who aren't comedians. I'm afraid I'm always being in relationships that I secretly want out of. I'm afraid that I can't make up for the fact that my son is being raised in a single parent home. I'm afraid that my only female comics industry likes are young ones. And um, I'm afraid that one day my son will be on a podcast like this talking about how fucked up his childhood was. <laughs> uh, do you want to do some loves? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be reading uh, Chris's loves. Okay. And I don't know if Chris is uh, male or female. Not really sure. K-R-I-S. I think that's... Well, no, Chris Tinkle. You know what? That's turning into a male spelling. Yeah. But it was female for a while. I have a, yeah, I have a male friend. Maybe it's Chris it Jenner. Maybe, it <laughs> Maybe the Kardashian matriarch well, is starting to look for soften. A, uh, you want to start? Oh, okay. Um, I love the first five minutes of a hot bath before the water cools down. Oh, that is good. Uh, I love waking up and putting on Pandora Radio and hearing a great song I've never heard before that makes me feel cheerful about the day ahead despite knowing how rough it will be. My life is rough. Uh, I'm not being pessimistic. I love watching my son draw and I love how all of his people and inanimate objects have happy faces. Oh, that's th that is a good sign. Yeah. That is a good sign. Look at that. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, Chris says, I love knowing that despite how bad I look because of my illness, there are a handful of people whose love for me hasn't changed a bit. That's did, beautiful. Did he say what he has? He didn't. Or she didn't. Uh, I love having a new joke to try that night. Uh, I love 3 a.m. pancakes with my sister. I love when a new joke works more than once. Uh, I love knowing that I'm strong enough to stand up for myself now which is something I used to think was impossible for me to do. Look at that ah, on the same episode with sure. Laurie Kilmartin. Martin. Uh, I love how at breakfast my son likes to talk about Iron Man. <laughs> uh, I love learning new things, even if I know my cognitive issues will make me forget the details. Learning things gives me a feeling like no other. I love the idea of reading the entire Sunday New York Times. Do you... Do you have you done that? I get it every I get it every week and I get about halfway through. And I make myself recycle it every Sunday morning before I bring in the new one, no matter what. I'm like, you have a week. <laughs> Otherwise they just pile up and then it's just yeah. you know, it's kindling basically, and, and you know. Big fire hazard. Yes, totally. That's it for uh Chris's uh loves, but we can do some more of yours. I have a few more. Okay. Um at swim class I love watching my son do somersaults when he's supposed to be paying attention to the instructor. I love that I still have my breaststroke. Um, that was my stroke and it's all timing and I still have it for, I don't know why I don't deserve it, but I, cause I've been swimming enough. I love swimming in an outdoor 50 meter pool and I love curling up with my son when he sleeps and feeling like I would die to protect him. That's beautiful. Mm. That's beautiful. Cool. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. I know, uh, I know some of that stuff is probably really, really Yeah, painful. I got a little sobby in there. Sorry about that. You guys, I was weak. <laughs> But I'm strong again. I'm back to my old self. Get back on the subway and stare someone down. <laughs> get your get your mojo back. The A train will change your life. You know what? I, <laughs> I I think maybe the goal is to be able to have both of those parts of ourselves to to draw on the part that can 
break down and cry yeah. on the podcast and the part that can give mad dog somebody to say, don't, don't, don't fuck <laughs> yeah. with me. You know? Yeah, you need both sides. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Thank you so much. Sure. Laura. Thanks, Paul. Many, many thanks to Lori for such a beautiful, beautiful episode. I um, I love when people just let their walls down. And so... Uh, it's so empowering. And it's funny because we think it's just going to be just the opposite. We think we're going to be destroyed. But around the right people, there's, there's, I guess it's just finding safe people. Um, this episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must read for anyone in medicine from a doctor turned patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. A couple of things before I take it out with a uh, an email from a from a listener. I want to re- first of all, I want to thank um, people that help keep this show running. I want to thank the uh, the transcribers. Uh, we got a new transcriber named Ryan who is uh, hard at work. Um, thank you for joining the team and. Um, I want to thank Manny for keeping the forum humming. He uh, pretty much single-handedly keeps the uh, the spammers out of the forum and lets me alerts me if there's uh, something that he thinks needs my attention. And it really, really helps free me up to do other stuff like respond to emails or look at surveys or uh, look at my dick in a funhouse mirror and scream oh the humanity. Uh, there's a couple of different ways to support this show. Oh, a listener has started doing embroidered hoops. They're, you know, it's about the size of a, I guess it'd be about the size of a, a little bigger than a grapefruit, like the size of a huge grapefruit. Uh, and she is embroidering different sayings, things that have been said on this show. And one of the ones that she sent me, uh, so I can give it away to a, a listener, is an embroidered hoop that says, Crying is just your soul blowing a load. What a lovely thing that would be to hang up uh, on your home and welcome your 
your neighbors as they come in to meet you for the first time. <laughs> so I've picked uh, two numbers between 1 and 500. One number will be for the cutting board. The other one will be for the embroidered hoop. And whoever guesses closest to each number wins that uh, particular prize. This doesn't feel good. This does not feel good to me. And I don't know if I'm just in my head or not, but I feel there's always like a feeling of the audience looking at their watch. And I have that feeling right now. And uh, I don't know how true it is or not, but uh, it helps to say it. It helps to say it because then that takes some of the anxiety um, away. I don't know what that is about that I am so, that I so feel like I am testing the patience of people listening and and i know there are people who i genuinely probably am doing that too but why in my mind it's like you know all of you with your arms folded just waiting waiting for me to wrap it up um uh, the other way that you can support the show non-financially is by going to itunes giving us a good rating give us a nice review boosts our ranking brings more people to the show and you can also support us non-financially by spreading the word through uh, social media facebook tumblr all the crazy things all the crazy kids do all right i am going to read an email that i got from uh, a listener who calls herself marlene the psych nurse and she is actually a psych nurse and uh, she writes hey paul i've written a couple of times to you and filled out your surveys. One of my fears today is that I'm afraid that I'm sounding too needy and oversharing to you. Uh, I'm a psychiatric nurse and I've finally, quote, given in to my depression and anxiety and went to my first appointment with a psychiatrist earlier today. I have never sought psychiatric or therapeutic intervention before. I've been excited to write to you since the appointment to let you know that I'm going to start my first medication, Pristique, tomorrow morning. Well, excited is a little exaggerated. I'm terrified. Yet I feel slightly empowered. Since I've started working in psych, antidepressant, and anti-psychotic meds have lost their stigma to me. I'm afraid to say that I've met a lot of nurses out there who judge people who take them. Now seeing my patients and how much of a change these meds make in them, it's helped bring me to the point where I am ready to take them myself. I've suffered from depression and anxiety from as early as I can remember. Sexual assaults from my father, stepfather, and grandfather from the ages of 5 to 12. Constant and cruel bullying from kindergarten until I graduated high school. And a domestic assault that left me with a broken jaw, broken right ocular bone, and a massive skull fracture when I was in the army from a fellow soldier I was dating. Those instances led me to a couple of suicide attempts in 2001. Yada, yada. <laughs> yada, yada. Wow. <laughs> you get the drift. Um, bunches of bad stuff. And I'm here today. A bear, That was her, by the way, that wrote yada yada, not me. Um, bunches of bad stuff. And I'm here today, a barely functioning nurse who, quote, helps mentally ill patients with their problems, all the while putting on a mask that I'm mentally healthy. Mentally healthy. My appointment today, that was me trying to speed up. See, look what happens when I listen to that voice in my head. My appointment today has me diagnosed with major depressive disorder with psychotic features due to the paranoia and disassociative issues I have. 
I have to say, it sounds so much scarier than it feels inside my head. Since listening to your show, I've started carrying a leather-bound notebook with me, and the instant I feel a fear, I write it down. When I have a thought about my condition, I write it down. If I have an episode of anxiety, I write it down. I don't allow myself to edit or to reread it too much. It has been quite helpful. For some weird reason, it helps me feel, quote, less crazy. I sat in the waiting room today before my very first appointment and wrote the following paragraph. I am copying it unedited, spelling fuck-ups and all. I want you and everyone else who may read this message to hear my fears and thoughts in the waiting room, waiting to meet my first psychiatrist. And here she starts it. I'm sitting at my first psychiatric psychiatrist appointment and I'm shaking. I'm flushed and I can feel my body trembling. I can hear my pulse in my ears. I hit traffic and was stuff, stuck in traffic and behind every stupid slow driver in Orlando on my way here. I'm extra nervous now because as I was standing in line to check in, I saw the lady checking out had a prescription for Xanax. God damn it. I'm in a fucking pill pusher's office. I knew it. I'm afraid he will insist on prescribing me a controlled substance that I'll get addicted to. I want help. I just want help. I don't want to be dependent on pills. The tension in my arm is hurting. I've got a, it's got a death grip. I've got a death grip on my pen. Please be a nice doctor. Please, please, please. I hope I don't crawl inside myself, inside my brain when he starts asking me questions and get too afraid to tell him what is wrong. That's the end of what she wrote in her journal. And then she writes, I know Xanax is helpful in a short-term management of anxiety. I've just It's just got a bad rap with us in the uh, mental health community because we help a ri- ridiculous amounts of people who have become addicted to it, along with the other benzo meds. I'm not meaning to step on anyone's feet about anxiety. Much love, Marlene the nurse. And I wanted to read that for you guys because I just thought that was a just a beautiful peek into somebody's soul and i love when people do that like lori and like marlene like uh all of my guests who uh have let us get to know the the sides of ourselves that we're afraid to let people see and to me i think that's what it's all about so if you're out there and you're uh, oh one more thing i want to read before we go this is uh from the happy moments survey and um I like to pick moments that are just kind of um, not traumatic, but but something about it is is just um, kind of simple and beautiful. And um, this one was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Wendy. She's in her 20s. And she writes, I was on, on vacation in Southeast Asia visiting a friend. We left her parents' house and went to the grocery store across the street and bought a can of cheap beer. Then we sat on top of a bridge and drank it. It tasted awful, but the night was warm and we could see into this beautiful apartment. We pretended that we lived in it and imagined what our lives would be like. It was a perfect moment because I didn't want anything more. Our shitty warm beer and our harmless voyeurism and the feeling of youthful recklessness were more than enough. I love that. Thank you for that, Wendy. And thank you guys for listening. And to anybody... Who's, uh, who's out there and feeling stuck. There is hope. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed that. And as I said, we'll be back with new episodes in January. And uh, never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely fucked up in some weird way. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.